Shamai Ahroso. Hello and welcome to the New York Welsh podcast, the podcast that celebrates Welsh success stories in New York and hopefully inspires the creation of some new ones. I'm Gideon. And I am Richard. Hello, mate. It has, it's been a while. It has been a while. Yes. I'm uh, getting very used to this kind of flat 2D Gideon. <laughs> but uh, yes, I'm excited to be getting back into uh, recording the podcast after the lockdown. Yes, it's been a while, but um, I think it'll hopefully be worth the wait. Uh, we have a fantastic guest today. Uh, his name is Jamie Grundy. He's a former football coach uh, and writer with a particular focus on criminal justice education and rehabilitation. He is the author of 90 Minutes of Freedom, a book which follows HMP Prescoid FC, the only prison football team in Wales. Uh, it was written over a single season of uh, Gwent Central Division 2. The book was written with the support of the National Sporting Heritage Charity, and it was actually written as an exploration of how sport can assist with the rehabilitation of prisoners. On this episode, we discuss some specific stories of rehabilitation through sport, uh, the origins of the book, and the interesting process of how Jamie went about his research. We covered a range of topics as they relate to the benefits of sport to prisoners, uh, some of it specifically related to the inmates of HMP Prescoid, as it's an open prison in rural Monmouthshire. Um, but I think a lot of the principles could actually be applied to the prison system in general. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's worth remembering that the prison experience of most inmates uh, around the world is not that of someone in an open prison in bucolic South Wales. Uh, so, you know, this episode was originally scheduled to be recorded at the beginning of the year, pre-lockdown. Uh, but it actually bears more significance now that it should come out amidst the resurgence of activism around the Black Lives Matter movement and calls for reform to the justice system. The prison industry here in the States is a juggernaut. It generates $6 billion of profit every year. And to do that, it relies on a steady influx of new inmates serving long sentences. The US now has the largest number of incarcerated citizens of any country in the world. And black males are hugely overrepresented in those numbers. Sadly, but not surprisingly, rehabilitation like that we discuss on this episode and incentivization to not reoffend are not high priorities for the people profiting from the prison industrial complex here. Inside the prisons, abuse in the form of inhumane treatment and excessive violence is a daily occurrence, and inmates being killed by corrections officers with impunity is not uncommon. And this is no different to the attitudes that permit police officers to kill black people on the streets with no accountability. Uh, for anyone interested in understanding this issue better, I can highly recommend a very well-made documentary called 13th by Ava DuBernay. As would I, it's incredibly eye-opening. Uh, I think it's here on Netflix. I'm sure you can find it in the UK. Um, but yeah, I would definitely recommend definitely recommend checking that out if you want to learn more. Um, and if you're looking for ways to support one great and easy way, um, is actually just to look into and I, I've done this did this myself um, a couple of weeks ago, um, is to look into any investments or savings that you might have uh, in your 401k or pension fund. Um, and just check that none of that is going towards uh, private prisons. Um, a lot of these funds, um, I suppose they have uh, opt-out um, options. So I would just either look into the fund itself or um, speak to any financial advisor you might have and just send them a quick email and say, hey, um, can, we, can we opt out of, of investing in this system if you so wish? Um, the other thing you can obviously do is also just look at what policies that different politicians in your local area um, support as it relates to prison reform. Um, but also, you can just do something as simple, which is supporting brands that openly employ uh, ex-prisoners. 
um, such as Timson's, which I found out the other day at the shoe repair um, business in the UK. Right. I mean, I think it's great that you, you're mentioning um, the UK because the problems with the prison industry I mentioned are, are certainly not confined to the US. They are, they're certainly a British problem too. Um, here's, here's some numbers that I came across recently that shocked me. Uh, the US prison population has increased by 500% since the reintroduction of private prisons in the 80s. And I think it needs to be pointed out that since the UK introduced private prisons in 92, the prison population has increased by 250%. And for my money, I feel that capitalizing on mass incarceration is at least unethical and I think antithetical to what the justice system is supposed to be for. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, and finally, I would just say that I think beyond that, I think there's just also just great ways you can get involved in supporting through your local community efforts. Um, there's a bunch of different organizations now that help provide structures and opportunities that lead to uh, stable employment and housing. Uh, one great example here in New York that I, I've recently discovered is, is called Back on Your Feet. Um, it's a running club that meets Mondays, Wednesdays and Friday mornings across the city. Um, it's actually just another great example of how sport or uh, athletics or fitness can be used um, as a way to help with rehabilitation, um, which I think brings us nicely um, back to our conversation with Jamie. Um, I'd say it's an incredibly interesting chat. Uh, we definitely touch on some of these topics, but certainly certainly not all of them. But I think it's a great it's a great um, place to start, regardless. And I and I'm reminded that I enjoy doing these podcasts because because uh, I, I get to have these conversations around subjects that I wouldn't ordinarily encounter. I, I really enjoyed it, and I hope you all do too. Jamie Grundy, Jamie, great to have you on. Thanks for thanks for joining us today via via Zoom. Um, so you're, you're back in Cardiff, is that right? Yeah, that's right. Back here now. Didn't make it over to New York originally. Yeah, yeah, it's a shame. I think we were just talking before. You said you were, you were two days away. To, uh, to coming out in March or before things ground to an inevitable halt. Yeah, two days uh, before I finally got the notification that all uh, travel had cancelled from the UK. Um, so it's great to be able to do this, even though it's you know virtual and, and remote. We can uh, it'll still be good to talk about my book and experiences and and record the podcast. Yeah, yeah, and and it's June already. Can you believe it? We're talking about March and it's June. Oh my God! It feels like yeah. not much has happened, but at the same time, <laughs> a lot has happened. Definitely, yeah. yeah, most definitely, a lot has happened in, in only a few months. Kidding, you, you 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 grew a massive beard, you shaved your massive beard. It's... I've done that twice. <laughs> this, is, twice. <laughs> this was the I'm, second massive beard. Uh, I'm growing man at the moment. I'm enjoying a good lockdown beard. I've quite enjoyed that. <laughs> so I'm curious, what was your, what were you, you were coming over in March, I know that you had this, we were going to speak, and you had a few other um, speaking engagements, what, what were the other, what was the primary reason for coming over, and what, what did you have in mind? And having well, the, opp the opportunity was to come over really to New York and maybe try and uh, meet some publishers, um, originally I was coming over because I had um, family coming over to watch the New York City versus Vancouver Whitecaps game. And I have a couple of contacts with New York City. So I reached out to the club and said, if I came over in, uh, when was it, February or March time, would you be interested in me doing something for the club? Uh, and the club were really interested. They said, yeah, we'd definitely be interested. 
So that was the first thing that, that sort of piqued my interest. Uh, the second one was that um, there's a really interesting um, prison education project up in upstate New York in, in Ossising, I think it's called, around mm, Sing Sing. They, they call it Sing Sing, yeah. Sing Sing. So um, I reached out to uh, the, they're called the Hudson Link Project. So I reached out to them and made some good contacts. And they were really interested in uh, me coming to the prison and speaking there. Um, I'd heard sort of uh, that they have a um, an American football team there inside the prison. So I was keen to see that as well. So, you know, sport in prison is a little bit different. It's, it's mainly used for recreational purposes. So anything where you've got sport going on in the prison, I was keen to see more. So just to sort of contextualize your your background it, i know you you've worked in uh, as a professional in criminal justice and also in football yeah maybe you could ex- explain for us and the listeners uh, what the, both those backgrounds are okay well back in the day um i was originally a football coach uh, for manchester united i was i ran the women and girls program for a number of years at the club and it's in those days it was nothing like it is now it was very much a a community based program where we would go out in the holidays and I would run lots of programs there. Um, but I ran that for um, a number of years, always enjoyed that experience. And I've continued as a football coach uh, throughout my life. Uh, I've coached a number of teams. So football has always been good in terms of being an engagement tool, particularly if you've got uh, people who are a little bit uh, a little bit wild, a little bit enthusiastic, shall we say. It's always a good anchor for them to say, look, if you come and play football for me, then, you know, we can we can work together. So that's always been good. Um, even prior to that, back in the day, like the late 80s, I used to play football. Um, originally, I'm from uh, Lancashire. And I used to play football then against two prison teams. They played in a local league and all the games, home and away, were always played inside the prison. Unfortunately, neither of those prison neither of those prisons has a team anymore but as a 18 year old 19 year old kid going into prisons and meeting some you know some seriously big chaps shall we say and playing football against them and being quite apprehensive when I got to meet them and got to talk to them you realize that actually they were just like you just that they'd maybe made a fewer made a few poor life choices and uh, got involved in some things that they shouldn't have done and then found themselves into in prison. So it had always been in the back of my mind uh, there for a while. Fast forward a number of years, I've done various bits and pieces of work, but for the last few years, I've been working um, on various educational projects inside um, some of the prisons in South Wales. I've been living down here now for 25 years. And whenever I've been in those prisons in South Wales, the gym or the football pitch is always a big deal. But generally... The football pitch is a concrete five-a-side affair. What was different about the prison where the book is set, Prescoid, which is in southeast Wales in rural Monmouthshire, was that it, I'd, I'd heard that it had a football team um, that played in a local league, but there wasn't a great deal that you could find out about the team when you were there because it's an open prison. So most of the men there, because it's a male prison, will work during the day. So they would be engaged in projects either off the prison camp, they're literally bussed out every day, or they would be engaged in projects inside the prison itself, kind of hidden away in the kitchens or in recycling or um, working on on the wings, 
all kinds of different things. So you don't really see them that much. And it was very difficult to find out about. Added to that was the fact that the pitch was hidden from view. It was the the geography of the of the prison is that it's on a hillside like most of South Wales is. And the prison there has the prison buildings on one side of the of the hillside. And then at the bottom is a, a pine forest planted. Uh, we think during the Second World War to reply to re, to um, provide sort of, you know, replacement uh, fast growing timber. And it's on the other side of that pine forest are where the pitches are. Um, so you couldn't you couldn't see it from the camp. And as I grew to find out, as I, as I understood it, the more that we went on, the actual location of the pitch is one of the reasons why football seems to work very well in the prisoners' engagement tool with uh, with male prisoners, simply because for the first time in a number of years for those individuals who are able to go and play football, it's the first time they're not they haven't been surrounded by any uh, prison signage, by any barbed wire, by any high walls or anything like that. They're literally. In, in a couple of fields surrounded by leafy farmland and cattle on the hillside. And for a lot of those men, especially the ones who've done quite a few years as part of their prison sentence, that's the first time they've ever seen a view like that. And it really made them feel like they weren't in a prison. So it was it was a really interesting experience. And I did that walk through the Pine Forest with a number of the prisoners that I knew that that was the first time men who'd done, I think one guy had done 12 years, and that was the first wow. time he'd ever seen that view. A couple of guys wow. had done seven, four years. So it despite was... Being, despite being so close to it for so many years. Yeah. Um, you know, you know, and it must be weird, yeah, going, knowing, knowing it's so close, it's not like you're in the, you know, in the middle of the city or something. Yeah. No, no, they are, they've gone from prison to prison, especially if you've done a long prison sentence, you'll have gone all over the place. Especially if you've done... You know, some of the people who have got long prison sentences, you know, they've been involved in some, you know, serious crimes. Um, so for them to walk through, I think it's sort of 170 yards up and down a little dirt track through these very dense pine trees. And you literally come out. I describe it in the book as being just like coming out of a, uh, uh, a football player's tunnel when they're in a stadium and they come out into the light and the noise of the crowd and the floodlights. It's with, you know, with the exception of the noise, it's very much like that. You know, the, the trees are very dense, very overgrown. So when you're coming through this dark path and you're literally coming out into the daylight, a couple of the men that I spoke to were really, uh, it really took them aback. They were really blown away by it and they couldn't stop talking about it. And, I, and, and the significance of that journey wasn't lost on me, which is why I, I, I walked that, that way with a couple of them, you know, when it was their first time. Wow. So when did when did you decide that oh this is this is something special here I think I need to I need to document this I need to write a book about or, or I need to tell this story there's there's something here that needs to be um, well, explored and explained well the the opportunity I'd, I'd always kind of wanted to do something like this but the opportunity had never presented itself uh, ninety minutes of my freedom is my first book but what I did was um, I was. I was involved in, in a, a sporting heritage uh, charity and they were looking to fund sporting heritage projects, particularly from Wales. And they wanted something a little bit different, a little bit unique, but they didn't want any more football projects. Um, I'm a footballer um, and I knew that there was something interesting there. And I'd 
I knew a, bit, a little bit about the team. So I pitched the idea about capturing not necessarily a moment in time, but a season in time of a prisoner football team, something that very few people get to see. And were they interested? Fortunately for me, that they, they were and they snapped my hand off. Um, and they gave me a little bit of funding to um, to start the project. Uh, they're, they're called Sporting Heritage. And I'm always eternally grateful for them uh, giving me that support. And that basically started me on the journey. Once I knew that, that they'd give me the funding, I then approached the prison formally and said, I'd like to do this project. What do you think? They may well have said no. Uh, they said yes, but... Because you want to, at that point, I said I wanted to interview the prisoners themselves. They they said to me that I would have to, um, I would have to go to the Ministry of Justice. So I literally went to Westminster. Um, there's a national research committee there with a with a proper established protocol, lots of do's and don'ts in terms of if you're going to interview prisoners, what you have to do, what you can't say, such as their real names. I've used pseudonyms, um, and all my questions were vetted. There's an approved process for research in a prison. People have got to give um, voluntary consent to participate rather than them being uh, you know, required or enforced to, to participate in any research project. So that, that was basically what, it, you know, what happened. Um, that research process wasn't easy. It took me quite a long time. I've spoken to a few other researchers since, and I've been able to advise them how not to go about it, which has yeah. been useful. Um, I mean, that so, must be a, that must be a unique, unique situation. Because I mean, I, I don't know if you were inspired by any of the, you know, I, I think about um, the Sunderland documentary, Sunderland Till I Die, which I thought was great. See, yeah. You know, Chris Coleman, I'm sure it's a lot of Welsh people, and um, you know, there, there's a lot of. Uh, uh, so a lot of people have seen that, and then uh, here in the US, it was, I don't know if you've seen Last, Last Chance You, whether that made it over there. Um, yeah. Which I think are both, yeah, that that one follows. I think recruits uh, Mississippi Community College, who you know, it's their it's their last chance really to get an education and um, use sport as a way to do. That. What's this? This is a doc documentary TV show, isn't it? Yeah, it's a series based over in um, down in the south of America, and it basically follows. People, I, tell me if I'm wrong, Jamie, but uh, it's American football college yeah. players who are basically on the fringes of their programs, and I think often have been either kicked out of their colleges or not meeting their grades. And it's basically a, it follows them through their last season. And it, while it's about the sport, it's also about the individuals themselves and how, to some extent, the sport helps them um, get through that time. Yeah, I've, I've I've not seen it, but I've got a couple of friends who've talked about it, so I kind of know about it secondhand. But I think that's what I found here is one of the things I tried to do with the book was I, I I tried to let the voices of the individuals be heard, and as raw as that is sometimes, I think I'd like to think that I achieved that, um, and that's what I tried to do. I I wanted. Not necessarily their stories, because I was limited into what I could, uh, what information I could include or verify. You know, if they told me something, I had to take it as read that what they were telling me was was their truth. But I wasn't able to go and, for example, interview families or friends or victims of crime. I wasn't able to do any of that. I instead I had to invest a lot of time with the individuals themselves and, and find out about them. But some of their stories and, and some of the things that they told me 
I can understand precisely why they've ended up going to jail. When you start to find out about their backgrounds, um, you know, poor experiences at school, sometimes dyslexia, um, didn't get much, you know, they didn't engage in school, so they dropped out of school early, then they, therefore they weren't able to get work, um, but needed money, um, meeting, you know, poor choice of friends, places where they lived, you know, there are high incidents of crime in those communities. It, it's not too difficult to, you know, to, to uh, almost create a sort of a, a patchwork quilt of what a prisoner looks like when you, when you look at some of the backgrounds of some of the individuals. Family mm. members who've been in prison before, if your father's been in prison, for example, you're much more likely to go to prison yourself than you would do if, if your father hadn't been in prison. All, all those kind of little things, when you put them together, you can see, yep, I can, I can understand exactly how you've ended up in this situation. How did you? How did you? How did you? How did you approach those conversations? Like, how did you get 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 to earn the trust? Because I imagine coming in, you know, asking questions, and there must have been a lot to say. I mean, you kind of acknowledged there, right? Like. You're not you're not quizzing them. You're not being yeah. an investigative journalist. You're a documentarian. You're just trying to paint the picture. But how did you how did you explain that to them and go through that process? Well, the the process that I did was um, once I'd got all the permissions there, I knew that they trained on a Tuesday and that their games were on a Saturday. So I literally just turned up for training and turned up for matches and tried to get to know them. I knew from working with prisoners that if I sat down with them and I asked the questions relatively cold, there was a high chance that either they wouldn't want to participate or that they may just tell me the answers that I, that they thought I wanted to hear. So instead I knew that it would be important to invest time to get to know them. Um, and that was useful really. So I, I literally went down there every Tuesday and every Saturday for about four months. Um, originally, some of the guys didn't know I I, I wasn't a prisoner, um, and a couple of guys uh, were. I could see them when they found out that I wasn't a prisoner. They were trying to desperately backtrack on some of the conversations that we'd had because I think they were a bit worried that I was going to uh, drop them in. But uh, but that was good. You know, I got I got did to you, know did them. Did you ever get asked? Did you ever get asked what you're in here for? Do people ask that? I mean, is that yeah. A- yeah, interestingly, yeah. the the prisoners themselves didn't do, but the way that the pitch is set up, you've got the Prescoy team on one side of the pitch, and then the other side of the pitch are the opposition, and they often bring a bit of an entourage with them. Um, right. Because the opposition, you're, and I think you said this at the beginning, but you're, you're the only prison team in the. This was the only prison team in the league. All the opposition are. It's know, re- regular teams, yeah. Regular you know, teams, yeah. yeah, they're just normal football teams made up of. You know, regular people who play football, but occasionally those individuals would would wander around uh, to our side, maybe out of a bit of idle curiosity, or I would sometimes wander around and see how they felt about coming to play prisoners. Did you encounter uh, any of the same uh, preconceived attitudes that you said you felt yourself as an eighteen-year-old? Yeah, you did do. All of all of the players said that they were always apprehensive when they first came in. But actually, what they quickly learnt was that you didn't get any of the, I don't know, some of, some of the problems that you sometimes hear about in, in parks, football in the UK, of you know people getting drunk on the side, abuse being hurled at, at them by, by, opposite, by opposite 
players or opposite fans, I should say. They didn't encounter any of that. Uh, and the referees also said it was one of their favourite places to come and referee again because they knew they weren't going to get any grief. Um, so rather than it being an unsafe place, in a strange place or in, in a strange way, although you are surrounded by you know, a higher number of criminals than you would normally expect to be, it was actually a safer environment for a lot of opposition players and fans and entourage. Did it feel, um, I don't know, I, I, when, you, when you even describe it, like I, I can't think of them specifically, but there were, there were, these are, there's film narratives, right, where they, yeah. they conjure the, the, these stories of prison. To, you know, there's obviously Escape to Victory, which is obviously an iconic movie that's obviously different context, but, um, yeah. given there were prisons of war. But um, even in recent years, I've seen other, other films. Like, how, how was it like? Was it like, sure, this is like, a, was this like, no, this is completely different. Like, I'm just curious, what do, what do they depict that's right? And what's just completely amiss when, when they try and depict those scenarios? Um, that's interesting. Yeah, what, I, I think the camaraderie is probably one of the things that you get from it. Uh, I, I talk about in the book about that there is a camaraderie amongst the players because they're either that either 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 that's because of the team f- side of it or because of the the fact that they all have the label prisoner, so they know that they've got common challenges ahead of them, whether it's that day or for however long in the future. So there's definitely a camaraderie there. Uh, putting it bluntly, the toughness of these individuals. You know, there are some very tough men there. Uh, and it, and it, I wasn't that aware of it until usually the team win most of their games. Uh, but that year, that season, they lost their first game in three years. And I saw the, uh, the arguments that went on in the changing room between a couple of the players. Now, arguments like that go on in any football club professional or amateur or any sports club professional or amateur up and down the land you know when people have lost a game that they thought they shouldn't have they will pick the game apart between themselves they'll blame other people they'll minimize the responsibility that they take um, but when we were in the changing room there I had two men really forcefully arguing at each other and they had their shirts off and these are guys who were very very fit individuals both six foot plus, and as they're, you know, really arguing the case against each other and a couple of the people are jumping in, I realise that these two men between them have got five prison sentences. To, you know, there are sentences to do with um, violence involved. If it were to become physical, you know, you couldn't pick one side over another. And, you, and, and for the first time, I was, uh, of all my experiences in, in the prison, I was, I wouldn't say fearful, but I was acutely aware of how um, significant this was. Also, I was aware that because it's an open prison, you have fewer staff around. And the only, although I wasn't a member of staff, the only other person there was one of the prison officers. And I'm not a big guy. I'm like five foot seven. He's shorter than me. Um, you know, I'm sure he, I'm sure that he was, he's trained to, to restrain people, but I'm, but I'm not sure how well he would do there. So I, I was acutely aware of of, of this potentially unfolding situation. Um, but what but what happened was that the prison officer, at just the right point, stepped in and started to speak to the men. And you could see then that the staff had got a respect that maybe some of the other prison officers don't do because of the role that they occupy as a PE officer. 
a physical education officer, and the and the men listened to him. And what and what I realised in reflection was that actually he was letting them get all their frustrations, all their emotions out, to vent their spleen, if you will. And once everyone had had said their piece, that was it. It was done and dusted. Now I've been around plenty of football changing rooms, and I've seen arguments like that fester and carry on to fights in car parks and showers. We didn't get any of that. These guys had had their piece. They'd got it out of their system, and it was like right. Okay, there were no incidents in the prison that night. Um, and then I think the seeds were sown for them to Prescoy to go on and win the rest of their games. And they, they they beat that team handsomely in the return fixture later on in the season. So what I noticed being in the prison was that the prison officers in charge of the football, the PE officers, had a very different relationship with the footballers than other normal prison officers did. Um and, and how that showed itself was because it's an open prison, the prisoners are free to walk around within reason. And quite often you would see um, some of the players would, would go up to the PE officers at the top of the camp. And there's a, there's a little officer, almost like a typical uh, PE office that you remember from school that kind of like, it's got loads of equipment in there and there's a, there's a, a vague odour of, of sort of sweaty kit in there. But they would go in there and they would sit down and they would have a cup of tea with the PE officers. And those prisoners would speak to the officers about the team selection on a Saturday, the game that was coming up. But actually, the longer they were there, they would then start talking about what was going on at home. Um, problems maybe that their kids were having, the fact that their they were worried about what was happening to their wife or their girlfriend. And that you got to realise that actually that the PE officers were almost kind of like um, pseudo-psychiatrists in a way. Um, the little uh, chairs in the office were like a psychiatrist chair and the, and, the, and the players would sit there and they would talk to the PE officers about problems they were that, that they were having at home because while they were serving a prison sentence, in a way their families were also serving a prison sentence because, you know, there was less money coming into the home. The kids might be getting in trouble at school and there was, you know, dads weren't there to to try and be a positive voice for them, to be a positive role model for them, to try and get them back on on the right path. And you realise then that the players were actually uh, talking to the PE, PE staff because they trusted them. The PE staff were working class guys, just like a lot of the prisoners were, but were the you know, where, where they'd taken one path, the prisoners had taken another path. But you got to see quite sim- quite easily then that there was a, a different relationship there with the PE officers and, um, and the prisoners as opposed to the regular officers that you would see day in, day out that would, that would be involved in the running of the prison. You say that they're, they're, they win most of their games. Yeah. So I think it's worth explaining at this point that uh, the team competes in the Gwent Central Division 2, mm-hmm. wins most of their games. I think you said that sometimes double-figure scores are not unusual. Yeah, yeah. But they can never That's be promoted, r- right? Yeah. So there's a reason for that. Uh, the reason is is that I think there's a, a part of it is by design and part of it is a little bit of um, goodwill from the Football Association of Wales. They allow Prescoid's participation in the league as long as they play in a league which is outside of the Football League pyramid system. 
And what that means is that if they were to be in the Football League pyramid system and you start off at the bottom, if you win most of your games, you are going to be promoted. And then you could be promoted into another league. And then you could keep moving higher and higher up the league pyramid system. Now, the FAW at the very top, um, that league carries with it European League qualification. Now, for a team who plays all of their games home and away inside the prison, that would be a bit of a nightmare, I imagine, for the uh, for the prison administrators to try and make that happen. Uh, similarly, the higher up the leagues that you go, the, the more the uh, the ground criteria is required. You need things like uh, grandstands. You need to provide you know meals for teams. All, all those kind of things that you need. Um, so it, it just wouldn't it just wouldn't be able to happen. They have. So you would think that okay, they're just going to stay at that level. And fair enough, they do. They have played friendly fixtures against players who from some of those higher leagues, particularly the Welsh Premier Division. They've played the odd. Um, the odd friendly fixture, and they equip themselves pretty well. They, 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 you know, they might lose a game there, maybe two one or three one, but they are they're playing pretty well. Um, similarly, there are plenty of professional footballers who have been inside, and there was one ex-professional who played during the t- during the season that I was there as well. So you do get players who've played at a pretty high level and have found themselves in prison for whatever reason and decide to continue to play. So the standard, although you would think it would be pretty poor, it's 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 a lot better than you would imagine. And also the pit the pitch is pristine. It's a really nice pitch. Far better than most park pitches are. What are the other similarities or differences between like what the the opposition that they would be playing in? I mean beyond the obvious of them, you know, one set one team is incarcerated. But yeah. like and and what you mentioned around maybe like the prison guards or PE teacher, like do they have? Is there like a coach? Is there a captain? Is there, you know, what obviously the kit? Like what? What? Yeah, I'm just curious by the like the club infrastructure and differences and similarities. Yeah, well, the the club is run by there are four PE officers, so um, the club is run basically by those four. And what that means on a practical sense is that most teams will have the same manager and the same coach on the side every Saturday. They've generally got a rotating uh, cast of coaches on the side every every Saturday. I was probably the only constant there every week. So the co- so the PE officers were asking me sometimes about um, about team selection or tactics. So that you've got a rotating cast on the side every Saturday. Um, the difference is that, is that you don't have a sponsor, for example, on the shirts. Presque playing either a plain blue or a plain red. So there's no sponsorship there as such. Um, the captain, often uh, John for this season, often takes an active role in kind of team selection. So, but that happens in some clubs. So the, so the, you know, the the captain, so John would sit down with the uh, with the coach. Um, a couple of days beforehand and talk about who was coming up on possible team selection. Um, prisons are funny places as well because quite often the uh, there's what's called a, t- a prison churn, so people come in and out of the prison system. So the team selection isn't always settled. Um, so you would have new prisoners who would come in um, but were known to be quite good footballers. So there were, people would know them maybe from different jails 
so they would be more likely to come into the team. Uh, so you, and they come in mid. They come in mid season. Yeah, that would be different because obviously teams change all the time. But yeah, maybe that's the difference, right? Yeah, they, they would come in mid season. So you know, so there were there would be different experiences then. So people would play probably for the prison team at most two seasons because these are prisoners who are in who are generally in the last two years to eighteen months of their sentence. Hmm. So and what's the average? What's the average age? Would it be similar? similar kind of range or do they tend to skew younger older is there more of a, yeah no i'd say they're, they're pretty much the same same age range to um to a regular parks football team you've got a couple of old heads in there that, that can play and then you've got some young lads who are maybe you know on the first or second sentence that are a bit a bit fitter and a bit more enthusiastic they come in uh it, it was interesting one of the games that they played what are the teams um, they, I saw before the game, they had a little presentation before the game around the around the semicircle, one of the opposition, and that was because one of their players was making their 500th appearance for that team, and I joked to uh, some of the prisoners saying, "Just wait till you make your 500th appearance," and you know they were they were like, "No, not likely. I don't want any of that." So you know you <laughs> you, you don't get that longevity that you might get in um, in some of the other teams. Yeah nor do you want it I guess. exactly that was what i said i joked with him about yes. you know you, there are these controversial sentences called um ipps over here that can be that a prisoner could be given and it might mean that you you just and you just never get out of prison you just stay there because this one year ipp sentence keeps rolling and rolling so i joked with him that if you wanted to make 500 500 appearances then maybe they could get an ipp but uh... <laughs> and i suppose that camaraderie went a long way towards gaining their trust and then, yeah. and then having them be, uh, having them be frank with you, in the interview portion. Most definitely, yeah. One of the staff members said to me that you know previous researchers who'd come in just literally came in, got the data, and then left again. And I, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to be a part of it as much as I could. I knew I knew I couldn't be because I wasn't a prisoner. Mm. But I, I came in and hung around the changing room, uh, talked to the guys. Football's something that you know that we all have in common. It was a it's it, it's a leveler. It's a conversation starter. It's something that we've all got in common. How long did the process take? Do you think from from when you first showed up to when you thought, okay, I'm at a level now where yeah. I can begin the the true meat of this book? I I think it was, I think it was four months basically. I turned up to training one day, and uh, sorry, yeah, I turned up to the match one day, and as I walked down the uh, the the road towards the football changing rooms. One of the guys who uh, who was playing um, saw me, and, and at that point they were short, and he saw me from a distance and uh, and shouted, "Oh, Grundy, get your effing boots on, son. We're one short." Did Did you play for that, them that day? I didn't do, but I was on the bench, and I didn't want to play because I want they were they had a bare eleven, and I wanted them to sort that problem out for themselves. Because it's very much about them sorting things out for themselves, giving men responsibility, sometimes for the first time in their life. So I was on the bench. Um, but at that point, when when one of the players shouted that out to me, I knew that I was in as much as I could be, that that was the right time then. And how, how I knew that was right was when I sat down and did the interviews, and I would schedule the interviews around their availability, their schedule. When I did the interviews... Nobody, nobody refused uh, permission for me to be uh, a part of that process. So that was good. There was one exception there, which was when 
one person was was injured and then they became part of the team again after being um, uh, being out through injury. I hadn't got to know that individual. He asked me if he could be a part of the interviews. And I said, yeah, yeah, that's fine. And when I sat down with him to do the interviews, when he saw the, the words Ministry of Justice on my um, on my research permission forms, he backed out. He backed out immediately. Then he said he didn't want to be a part of it. So I knew that that whole process of investing time with those individuals was important. Uh, and then I'd done the right thing. So, I, you know, the one person who didn't, didn't participate was the one person I hadn't been able to get to know. Uh-huh. Can, you, with it, can you share maybe like if there's, is there one individual and it, you mentioned John the captain so, so yeah. I assume these pseudonyms that you're using in the book yeah people? yeah they, they're all pseudonyms I had to use pseudonyms uh, for them so yeah no Welsh connection but I used the uh, the names from the Preston North End League Walton playoff winning team of 2015 <laughs> a little bit of uh, good. yeah a little bit of indulgence going on there that's a nice that's a nice Easter egg for someone to find out um, yeah, was it? Can you maybe share maybe? So, is there if there was one individual that like if there was or one bond? And I, I'm just yeah. Yeah, uh, there were lots of different examples there, but one of the things I think that struck out to me was one of the guys, Daniel. Um, he was on his third prison sentence, but when I got to know Daniel, I found out that actually he'd um, he'd been in Afghanistan and had been blown up three times and was suffering from PTSD. And he was in, he was not in a good way when I met him. Um, he'd come in. He was a really very good footballer. He played for the army, a cracking player. And um, but you could tell that when he wasn't playing sport, he was he was really struggling with his mental health. And when I sat down to interview him, um, I didn't want to do the interview at all. I I didn't think he was in a good place. But he really wanted to sit down and tell his story and tell his experiences. And and I knew about the links to uh, physical activity and, and, and positive mental health. And I know that prisons are stressful places to be and they there are higher numbers of people with mental health challenges in prison. And that's maybe why they've ended up in prison or maybe it's as a result of prison that they're facing those challenges. But he wasn't in a great place at all. But he still spoke to me and he gave me his time. And, and a couple of times I tried to to pause the interview, but he, he really wanted to do it. And I was like, OK. Um, and he told me about how sport was really helping him with his mental health. And it was, it was, he was on a lot of medication at the time. He was on all kinds of different um, uh, kinetic or different types of kinesiology type treatments. And and how he was telling me how the sport was helping him because it was giving him a focus for the week, um, and it was blocking out all the negative thoughts. When I interviewed him, and I was we spent a lot of time together, and I and I saw him on a pitch, I could really see how it was helping. The transition between doing that research interview and then about a month later, when I transcribed the interview, and I took it to him, and I, I what I did with all the interviews, I I. I I reframed them into a, a first-person narrative, so that it's coming from the uh, the prisoner's point of view, and and I try and as much as I can to remove my voice from that process. When I sat down with him and 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 he and he read through his interview, um, he was like it was like a different person. He was off all medication, 
he was working out as a mechanic in a nice, quiet, calm place. He was playing football and he was just, you could see how, how, how sport particularly had really helped him to, uh, to get over his PTSD, to get him off medication, to be at peace, probably for the first time for a number of years. And then I started to realize that, okay, sport was playing a part, but it was, it was a, it was a significant part, and for, and for for Daniel particularly, it was it was kind of more than just a game of football on a Tuesday or a Saturday with his mates. It was really helping him to turn his life around, both with his mental health challenges, um, and also his you know the issues that he's got to deal with with his with his criminal convictions. Which is, I think is it's the main thrust of the book, really, isn't it? it, it yeah, it's about how sport can do that, in particular this this team for for these prisoners. Yeah. I think so, and and it was interesting. You know, that was kind of um, reaffirmed. I, I I was very fortunate. I, I approached Neville Southall, the, the former Wales international uh, goalkeeper, to to be a part of the book, and he agreed to write the forward for me. and And he's a he's a really strong advocate for a number of uh, social justice causes, not just I guess prisoners through this book, but but also he's very uh, pro people seeking help if they've got mental health challenges so he was very happy to be involved um, and just by and just by you know writing the forward for the book you know he he gave us sort of like an endorsement to that process that a lot of these individuals are on Um, it helps with a number of things not only the mental health but it might be things like the reintegration society helps with the behavior I think more than anything anger management you mean that sort of thing yeah the reason why it helps, I think, is that for most prisoners, you've got one set of rules to follow. And if you follow those rules, then you'll see your time out and everybody's happy. And that's just the prison rules that you've got to follow. But for the footballers, they've got three sets of rules. So they've got the prison rules just like everybody else. Then the other set of rules that they have are the uh, the, the rules that the prison officers set. So the, the PE officers, and they're more around etiquette. So... Um, accepting the decision if you're on the bench one week, turning up on time, getting the kit ready, pumping up the, the footballs, waiting to go to pitch, go to the pitch all as a team, um, you know, filling up the water bottles, all those kind of things that any football or sports team re- requires. Um, so they've got that second set of rules around etiquette. And then the final set of rules that they have to adhere to are the laws of the game, just to get onto a pitch so if they're on the receiving end of a bad tackle, they can't turn around and thump somebody. Um, and that was that was in, that was impressive to see because a lot of these guys face tackles from other you know meathead type players on the opposite side who thought I'll I'll have these guys now. You think you're so tough, or just trying to get a, a cheap um, a cheap response from some of the prisoners, and they took some awful tackles, but they never responded once. You know, they, and there were some tough guys, and I know that they felt it, but they played the game the way that it's meant to be, and they 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 took the action that they should have done, which is score more goals than the opposition. Mm. So yeah, they did that. And I suppose the the stakes are a little higher for them as well. If you're yeah, involved in alterca- altercation on the pitch uh, as a prisoner, yeah. presumably there's some sort of disciplinary measures that you don't you don't want to have to face. Yeah. So the first thing that would happen is that they wouldn't be allowed to play football again. Um, 
if it was really bad, they may well be sent back to a closed prison, which is the type of prison that you always see on TV with the kind of the landings and the and the big clanging doors and the uh, and the and the you know the bars on the windows, that kind of thing. Whereas Prescoid is an open prison, so it's very much the next step between a, a closed prison and then going back into the community. So they would they would end up going back. Um, I I heard of prison football teams where a violent incident happened and then the governor decided that's it we're not having it again and then the team was pulled and you, you know you never saw that again prescoids has been going over 20 years that we know of so i'm sure there will have been violent incidents then but it's a testament to the to the management of the prison that they've kept it going like that so, so jamie obviously you, you've been following you mentioned you know criminal justice reform and, yeah. and, and the prison system is something you've followed for a long time. What what has going through this project what in your views changed? Like what do you what do you know now that you didn't know before? What do you want to see? What have you learned? Um, what do you, what do you, yeah what do you, what are the messages that you you'll continue to take away from this I think, in the world? I think um, I think there's a couple of things really. One is a what is a, a message, I think, from the prison itself, kind of aside from football? Uh, and, and that is that just simply locking people up doesn't work. They've got to be engaged in meaningful programs for rehabilitation to occur. So Prescoid, most of the men at Prescoid will work either on the camp itself or off-site. They've got a farm there or out in the community and for those people, they're getting valuable work experience. So engaging in, in meaningful um, activities to help not only rehabilitate people, but to give them skills so that they can go in and, and be employed once they leave prison is so important. The other thing I wanted to do, I think, from the book was I wanted to show that there is a person behind every label, which is a prisoner. So if you see people who've been in prison, not just think of them as a prisoner, but just to think of them as being somebody's, this is a male prison I went into, but think of them as somebody's dad, somebody's brother, somebody's son, and see the person behind the label. That's that's what I wanted to do. And, and you know, I've been in prisons before um, where I've been guilty of not seeing the, the humanity behind it. So I wanted to show... I wanted to show that that, that that there's a person behind each of these stories. Um, and that's why I wanted their words to come out in their own, uh, not only in their own words, but also in their, in their own tone, their own accent. Interestingly, when I, when I read through the transcript of the book, I can hear each individual prisoner's accent. It's funny you should mention that because uh, I, I was able to discern, I think pretty accurately, which ones were Welsh. Yeah, yeah. You can hear I think it in can. the vernacular. You're like, this guy's Welsh. And then the other ones, you're like, well, okay, maybe he's not. Maybe he's yeah. from England. Yeah, there were a couple of English boys there. Um, yeah, but they were all nearly nearly all Welsh, um, all the way from kind of, you know, Monmouthshire to the east, all the way across to Llanethly. You know, they, they really were. They came all the way across the M4. Which I suppose yeah. must come with its own drawbacks. You know, if you're in an, uh, an open prison, might be something that you aim for as a prisoner, but you yeah. might end up hours away from those people that you're hoping are going to visit you. Yeah, ab- absolutely. It's 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 very much a double uh, double edged sword that way. You know, uh, um, it's it's a really difficult challenge. In, interestingly, I, I 
not in this prison, but I was doing some prison education work um, for Cardiff City Foundation. Um, it must be about 12 months ago now. And I met um, two lads as part of that program and they were asking me about what I thought they should do. They had two years left of their prison sentence, what I, sh what I thought they should do. And I told them that they should try and go to an open prison because they would be able to work and gain some experience and earn a little bit of money, which would set them up for when they, re when they were released. Now, uh, back in, I think, early February, I did a little mini book tour and I took it to a couple of prisons and I went to an open prison in the north of England called Kirkham. And I met those two lads there. They weren't able to get into Prescoid, but they'd remembered what I said. And they were now working for a recycling charity up in the northwest of England. And it was just complete coincidence. They saw my name down that I was going to be doing a book talk in the library and they came to meet me. And... Uh, they didn't buy a book, unfortunately, but you know, <laughs> you can't have it everywhere. But they were really good. They, were, they had a little chat with them. I caught up with them and they were telling me how excited they were they were working and they've got a bit of experience. Again, they were miles away from their family because they were both South Wales boys, but they, they could see that potential. So that was good to see. I think we could keep talking about this all day. I think it's a fascinating topic. And I think you said at the, at the outset, Jamie, it, it is a kind of niche area that doesn't get a lot of um, coverage. Um, so, so if, if people do want to learn more, if they want to buy the book, if they want to get in touch, is that where should they look online? Where can they find you? Yeah, well, if you want to find out more about this subject, um, if you want to buy the book, then just go to Amazon and you'll be able to buy it through there. Just search 90 Minutes of Freedom or Jamie Grundy and you should be able to see it there. If you want to find out a bit more about the work I'm involved in or if you've got any questions that you want to ask, then just... I'm on Twitter at JamieGrundyNet or just go to my website, JamieGrundy.net and uh, find the contact details there and send your message through. Thank you so much for uh, for your time and, and for coming to chat with us today, Jamie. Uh, it's been really interesting. And I think uh, you have to go and attend to your uh, fatherly duties. So we'll let you go now. Yeah, thank you very much, Gideon. Thank you, Richard. And uh, thank you for giving me this opportunity to speak to New York Welsh podcast today. It's been really good. Cheers, bud. Yeah. Cheers, James. Sorry, the role of the four PE staff running football at Prescoid is a curious mixture of manager, coach, father figure and counsellor, probably unlike much else in the prison system. Each Saturday, the team that the officer puts out, although intended to win, is also there to help the men start to take responsibility for themselves and their activity. The players fill up the water bottles, pump up the balls, get the kit ready, and in some cases sort out disagreements between themselves. Egos are not massaged, especially with the most talented individuals. If they're not prepared to do their time on the bench, then they will not be selected. Where disputes occur, the players are encouraged to resolve them between themselves as a process of conflict resolution and problem solving. The staff know the players are a long way from being the angry young men who they were perhaps when first arrested. The freedom of expression is not one way, as the players are prisoners and understand where a line may be that they must not cross. The colourful banter between players exists like it does in any sports team, and the experienced PE staff join in with many a line used to raise a smile and cut a player down to size should they need it. But rarely is it returned by a player towards an officer, perhaps because they are unsure of the repercussions 
or anxious about not being selected. Instead, the name-calling and jokes are directed inwards by the players most of the time. The players talk about having a different type of relationship with the PE staff at Prescoid, one based on mutual respect. That relationship appears to be different to the other staff-prisoner relationships in the prison. In some cases they are seen as father figures to whom the players will go to for advice. The staff joke that their office is sometimes used like a surrogate psychologist's office. Tucked away at the top of the camp where the perma-smell of years of accumulated sports equipment and kit permeates the very fabric of the building, the PE department fits the bill of a safe space for someone to go to talk about something on your mind. It is away from the management offices of the prison and behind the gym at the top of the camp, so it is easy to sit and talk away from any disruption, intrusion or observation. Conversations range from football to relationships to families to the future and all points in between. For the players, it provides a place of relative confidentiality to talk with staff who have the everyday detached link with the outside world that their fellow prisoners don't have. Without the emotional ties of family conversations. For those men who grew up without a father figure in their life, these are the sort of conversations with a father that arguably, if they had access to early in their life, may not have led them to prison or crime. Well, we hope you enjoyed listening, and if you did, then please subscribe and leave us a review, as long as it's positive. The more people review the show, the more people will get to hear the show. Yeah, and if you'd like to get in touch with us, then please do. The email is podcast at newyorkwelsh.com, or you can contact us through any of the socials. Both our Instagram and Twitter are at newyorkwelsh. And if you'd like to stay up to date with the latest goings-on, you can do so by subscribing to the monthly newsletter on our website, newyorkwelsh.com. Oh, yeah.